Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a fascinating gentleman in addition to a successful real estate entrepreneur, which I I value more, frankly. Yes, he is an entrepreneur. Yes, he is a startup founder. Also a data scientist. But how about this? A research psychologist has his PhD. And here it goes. Ready? Former rabbi, orthodox rabbi and best-selling author. And lastly, real estate investor. He is Levy Brackman. Levy, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. I'm really, really grateful to be here. Yep. And so good meeting you. We met last week at the uh, family office conference in, in Fort Lauderdale. So before we get into Invone and what you're currently doing for, and, and I know a little bit of this because we, we, we talked about it when we met, but for the audience sake, give me your background. I, I know it's the other side of the pond. Tell me about your upbringing and, and kind of was the, uh, the former days of Levy Brackman. I was brought up in North London, very Jewish part of North London called Edgware. It was actually at the time, it was like the great, the largest concentration of Jews in London was in Edgware and Ilford. And so I was brought up in, but it wasn't, you know, it was what you might call, it wasn't a very orthodox place at the time. So there was like five or six really, you know, very orthodox Jewish families there. And we were one of them. Although kind of interesting because my father wasn't that orthodox. My mother became Hasidic, but my father kind of remained who he was, which is why we ended up continuing living in Edgeware and not in the very orthodox enclave of Goldsgreen or Stamford Hill. Not that your audience would care about any of this, but a little bit of color to my background because my father had a PhD in chemistry and my mother was a teacher and my mother became incredibly, incredibly orthodox. She became Hasidic and kind of brought the entire family along with her. So there was my... There were nine of us in the end, which is a relatively large family. Yeah. Which, where, do, where do you fit into the nine? I'm number five. Okay. Well, you're right in the middle. Okay. Yeah, exactly in the middle. And, and you know, middle child syndrome, by the way, goes with you. Like, like if you're three and you're number two, then you got middle child syndrome, syndrome, you know, and if you, if you have nine and you're number five, you have it as well. In other words, it's, it, it's kind of this really interesting thing, no matter what you have it, if you're in the middle. <laughs> However many there are is, is exactly. just it is an irrelevant data point. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, go ahead. Maybe, maybe not. I but, know. I know. But but the point is we were so that's how we were, I was brought up. And and it's kind of interesting because that's kind of shapes who I am in many ways, because I don't think my father, like in his wildest dreams, ever thought that he would have to support nine children with the kind of career that he had. He was like an intellectually curious person who was doing research. And in those days, if you're a research chemist working in industry, you just didn't make a lot of money. So um, there was never much money around growing up. My father, you know, loved his, what he was doing, but he, he never went into management or anything. He just continues to research uh, for companies. And um, I, I remember vividly realizing that we, you know, everyone else had relatively new cars and other kinds of things. And my father had a 19, 20 year old car, which was full of rust. And somehow the refrain we heard most often growing up was we can't afford it when other people seem to be able to somehow afford it. And and bring, being brought up in that environment, 
made me value on the one hand intellectual curiosity and study and, and that type of thing, but also made me realize that, you know, you need to somehow figure out how to pay for it all as well. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, and it was always kind of a, like people who had money was this kind of mystery to me. How did they get it? You know, my father seemed like a smart guy and couldn't have, couldn't figure it out. How did these people figure it out? It always seemed to me kind of a mystery. Some kind of blessing from God must have kind of bestowed money upon them. That's what I kind of thought back then. And I just hoped that maybe that blessing would be bestowed upon me. Since then, I realized entrepreneurship and there's a way to actually make money, which isn't that complicated. <laughs> Why did you leave being maybe technically once a rabbi, always a rabbi, but I, I don't think you're currently practicing, correct me if I'm wrong, was the reason for transitioning out of doing that? You know, I think that I became a rabbi by, by default. I think I was a good rabbi. I was really good at it. And, 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 uh, but it was more like we were brought up Although my father was a scientist, my mother wore the pants at home, so to speak. So she kind of dictated in how we were going to be brought up. And we weren't really, the, the Hasidic community doesn't really believe in giving a well-rounded secular education. So we didn't get this well-rounded secular education. As a matter of fact, what a lot of people don't realize about me, despite the fact that I have a PhD, is that I never formally graduated high school with any kind of English, math, science, or any of those things. We just didn't do it. Imagine like... They didn't think that was necessary. So we didn't study science or math or any of those things. So I didn't, I actually, till this day, do not have a high school diploma. Um, I have three rabbinic ordinations. <laughs> I studied a lot of Talmud and I love studying Talmud. I still do, um, but um, I don't have a high school diploma. So what do you do when you don't have any other formal education and you're being, being basically, you, you're in rabbinic school since you're, since you were five years old, you become a rabbi. So that's what I became. I think as I hit 30, I realized that I actually don't have the kind of conviction needed to continue teaching this the way I was. Very interesting. Are you saying that you didn't learn math in high school? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I did a very highly quantitative PhD. I see. Okay. What an, what an interesting, interesting background. Did any of your, I'm assuming if there's nine, you have some brothers, did yeah. any of them go, did any of them become rabbis? Well, most of them are rabbis in some shape or form. Yeah. I have a brother who's a rabbi at University of Chicago, brother who's university, a rabbi at University of Oxford. I have a brother who's a, a rabbi in South London. I have a brother who's a rabbi in Westminster, Colorado. Uh, so yeah, a bunch of brothers who are rabbis. Okay. All right. Okie doke. Thanks for bearing with. I find that stuff very interesting. That's why I asked the questions. Uh -huh. How did you wind up getting into the real estate business? You know, it was kind of by mistake. I always kind of like admit to the fact that, you know, when I looked at um, real estate, I always said like, I, I don't understand this because I felt there was a lot of emotion attached to buying real estate. People were buying, especially now, I saw it in 2008, People were buying real estate that they couldn't afford. And I said, look, this is something which is too attached to emotion. And I always said, you know, maybe this isn't for me because I'm a much more of a rational thinker. But as I got to understand the numbers behind real estate, I realized that as long as you take the emotion out of it, it can be an unbelievable investment. So, you know, I bought my first home uh, in 2006. That was my, my first piece of real estate in my primary residence. I still own that, though I don't live in it anymore. And... Uh, when I moved out of that in 2017, and then I bought another one, I just rented it out. And I, I just realized that like, this is a really, really good thing. 
And slowly I just bought more and more. So that's my own personal. I own a real estate myself personally. I own a, not a huge portfolio, but uh, what I have is my own. So it's not a, you know, it's not, I don't go and fundraise from other people. And that, that basically pays the bills. But I got into it realizing, by just realizing that it's a really good investment. I actually ended up selling everything I had in the stock market to buy more real estate because I just felt that you can have more control over it. If you buy it, buy it right in the right location, it does really well. If you, when you say bought more and more, are you talking houses? Are you talking apartments? That's small multifamilies is kind of my speciality. I, I tend to buy it from people who are looking to retire who've kind of looked after it kind of well. And, uh, you know, uh, have done, have, have basically owned it outright and are, you know, willing to, to part to it with me without, uh, with allowing me to also make some money. I see. And, and near, you're, you're in New Haven, correct? Yeah. So I have some in, some in, in, in Colorado, but most of it is in, is in Connecticut now. I see. How, how did you wind up doing them in Colorado? Cause your brother's there? Cause I lived there. Oh, you lived there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I lived in Colorado for, from 2005 to 2019, so for wow. 14 years. Okay, and, and what prompted moving to back to Connecticut? So I was a rabbi in Colorado. So I actually ah. had a, I, I started my own synagogue in Colorado, in, in Evergreen, Colorado, just west of Denver. And uh, when I transitioned out of it, I ended up in corporate America as a data scientist. And I was offered a job at Priceline, which is in Connecticut. But it was, a, it was an executive position there. And they moved me, you know, all across the country to, to Connecticut. And I was looking for a place to live. Had some friends who lived in New Haven, the office of Priceline's in Norwalk. So it kind of made sense. So we, we settled here. Okay, dokie. All right. So in Vone, you know, I spent some time on this site in preparation for this uh, conversation. It looks kind of ingenious to me. I don't know if I understood everything about it. But maybe, you know, it looks like basically you're matching up sponsors and their offerings to retail investors, not necessarily accredited. It looked like you could invest literally as little as 500 bucks, felt uh, somewhat egalitarian. Maybe give me the background of it and, and, uh, you know, how you landed on it and, and what is the model and et cetera, et cetera. I found it very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting with any kind of an, uh, business which you start, often you start off thinking you're solving one problem and you end up solving another. And 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 so the thing as an entrepreneur, one needs to be able to kind of move around and, and change as things as realities change. I really started off trying to solve the problem for homeowners, trying to uh, gain some liquidity from their home equity without without paying huge amounts of money. You know, usually it's it's debt, it's a debt instrument. But if you want to use more of an equity instrument, like you would, you know, if you're a real estate sponsor, that really isn't available to homeowners. It is a little bit, but only, you know, for a very, very high price. There are some companies, which I won't mention on this podcast, because I'd, I'd rather people don't go there because they're really like the lender of last resort. And, you know, when you turn what they're offering into an annual percentage rate, APR, it ends up being very, very high. Are you talking about on, are you talking about on home equity loans? Not home equity. I'm talking about like, uh, if, if you, if you want to sell some of your home equity, which is really done as an options contract by these companies for the future value of your home, they'll give you money for an option on the future value of your home. But, you know, they, they ask for a pretty hefty price for that. So, so the idea of kind of pref equity, if you like, on your own primary residence is almost, you know, it's very hard to get. <laughs> But it shouldn't really be the case because the least risky form of real estate is home is 
unoccupied because people usually take care of it and they pay their mortgage. So, so that was the problem I was trying to solve initially. Uh, and you know, kind of have a two-sided marketplace where basically regular homeowners could sell pieces of their equity, so to speak, pref equity, if you like, to, to just regular other retail investors. And it's, I think that's still a good idea. And I'm not saying we're never going to do it in the future. I'm, you know, fully intend at some point potentially to do it, but it's fraught with difficulties from a regulatory perspective. perspective. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So let me ask a clarifying question. So first of all, I didn't even know that, by the way, that you could sell fractional part of your own home to other investors. I didn't even know this. That's very interesting. And so are you saying that that was the you know, first problem you were, you were attempting to solve and so that those uh, homeowners could then leverage perhaps and then invest into other different real estate opportunities? Or was it not necessarily with that in mind? They could do whatever they want with the money is the idea, right? They, they, could, they could reinvest it in anything, could pay for college tuition for their kids. You know, people become very home equity rich. And I still think that's a good idea to do that and to have a marketplace like that. It's just fraught with all kinds of regulatory issues. You know, you're dealing with, on the one hand, a protected class, which is the homeowners. On the other hand, on the other side of the marketplace, you're dealing with retail investors, which is a protected class. So it's just a lot of hurdles to overcome to actually operationalize that kind of marketplace. I think there's a place for it, but I'm just saying it was ended up, the reason why we pivoted a little bit away from that was because, you know, how challenging it would be to operationalize it. Okay. And so I went on in, in, in Vone in it, and there's a number of offerings and, and ways for retail investors to invest. And, I, and I'm just wondering then how then did you come, felt like a crowdfunding site to me just at first glance. It, is it akin to that? How is it different? And, and kind of what, what's the model and, and what, you know, kind of who and, and why are you serving? So we can jump into like some, some of the kind of nuts and bolts issues underneath the hood, so to speak, if you want to raise money for real estate. Basically, what has to be very clear is that you're selling securities. Anytime you have a, a fractional ownership in a comp- another company where you're not working in that company and you expect profits to come about as a result of the work of other people, you're basically owning a security in that company. And as soon as you own a security or you're buying and selling securities, there's all kinds of regulations which come along with that. There's there's an entity in the United States called the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they kind of regulate this entire thing. So you need to, you need to, if you're selling securities, you need to register your sale with the Securities and Exchange Commissions, unless you're using an exemption and then you're exempt from registering. So there are a number of exemptions that you can use for real estate. And mostly people use something called a 506B or a 506C exemption. And a 506C exemption allows you to sell securities to anyone, more or less, but you can't 
advertise that you're selling them. So all the people you're selling to are people who you have to have known pre- prior somehow. And um, you still have to make certain kind of uh, assurances or, or, or disclosures to them, etc. But it's basically a private kind of thing which you're doing between people who know each other. If you want to do any kind of advertising, you can do a 506C, which allows you to advertise, but you can only take on accredited investors. So now in real estate, you have a lot of people, a lot of sponsors, they're doing 506C offerings. So they're taking on a lot of investors and they are advertising it out there that, hey, I've got this offering, great securities that you can buy with, you know, whatever, whatever the description of the securities and the underlying asset they're buying into is. And the problem is though, only accredited investors can invest. And there's only 13 million accredited investors in the United States. So the advertising out there to the general public, to the investing public, but when the investing public shows up, they're saying to invest, they're saying, hey, one second, are you accredited? Even if they say yes, well, prove it to me. A lot of people get turned off by that. If you know anything about e-commerce, you know that um, if you've got a funnel, every single extra step you put in the funnel Right, where the people come in in order to be able to convert them to become a customer, in this case, an investor, every step, uh, additional step, um, is a, is, is a way for them to fall off the funnel and, and not actually convert. So really, this is a problem for, for real estate sponsors who want to be able to kind of go out there to the, to the public and investing public and say, please invest in me because we're putting a lot of stumbling blocks. What we solve for is that we allow, once you, once you're able to uh, list on our platform and you go through the process, of a Reg CF offering, you can do your 506C and a Reg CF offering at the same time. And now that allows anyone to invest in the deal, even if they're accredited or not accredited. So they might be asked, are you accredited? And if they say no, there's still a path for them to invest in the deal. Very interesting. That sounds super smart. Is is that what, does CrowdStreet do something similar to that? No, they're not a funding pool. So you know, the, the law which says on Reg CF says in order to be able to um, if you want to raise just from the general public, there are a number of ways you can do it. You can do the five or six B, like I mentioned, but then you can't tell anyone. You can't do any advertising. You could do a Reg A, which is I think some of the other uh, the other funding crowd crowdfunding platforms in real estate do. So they have their own Reg A fund, which allows just if you're just a retail investor, you can invest in their Reg A fund, and then they'll take that money from the Reg A fund and invest it in different deals as co GPs. So really, you're investing in their fund, which then invests in deals. Right. But if you're a sponsor, that doesn't solve the problem of the sponsor who wants to grow their brand and advertise to the general public. How do they do it? Well, the answer is, well, you want to be able to go directly with your deal to the general public without having someone else's reggae run in between. Right. So you have some of these other companies, like I think CrowdStreet, I don't know, they have, I'm not sure which one has, but they have their own reggae fund where you can invest as little as $10 into, into it, into their fund. But again, you're not investing into individual deals. If you want to be able to, raise, invest in individual deals, it's either, it's, you know, usually it's a Reg CF as a, as a, as a non-accredited investor. And if you're a sponsor wanting to allow anyone to invest in your individual deal, the best way to do it would be a Reg CF. So, but that can only be done on a funding portal. So in other words, the law is, the law is SEC basically outsources to a company like ours to say, Hey, you do the due diligence on them. You do the background checks. You make sure that the deal is not committing fraud. And that's our obligation. And then we provide the platform to make sure all the regulatory requirements are met, including all the different types of, you know, the fact that they can get a refund, the fact that different kind of notifications, disclosures, that's all built into the platform. That enables a sponsor to be able to go through our platform just to anyone. They couldn't do that on their own. Okay, just to be crazily and overly simplistic. Yeah. 
if I am a, can I, so you can through CrowdStreet, you can invest in individual deals. Can you do it directly through the sponsor and or do you have to be accredited? If, well, let me put it this way, if you're an accredited investor, can you invest in a specific deal through CrowdStreet and, and, and interact directly with the sponsor? You know, I, I can't talk for CrowdStreet because I don't know that deal, that business well enough to talk for them. Okay, um, I love it. I love the honesty. Okay. But in general, these these other platforms, you know, the CrowdStreets of the world, and they're dealing with accredited investors mostly, right? So the deals they're offering, you have to be accredited to invest in individual deals. Some of them do have reggae offerings, which allow you to basically invest as a non-accredited investor. But that reggae offering is not into an individual deal. Usually it's into some it's kind of fund, fund which invests yeah. into deals. Okay. Now I get it. Thank you for your patience on that. Okay. So, so this way as an unaccredited investor, you can invest in a deal by deal. So now I understand it. Okay. And, and then how do you identify the sponsors and, and how do you vet them? It was interesting because I hadn't heard of, uh, I don't think any of the sponsors on your site, which was refreshing to me because, you know, a lot of the other sponsors I've seen or, you know, that, that I know, uh, bluntly, I wouldn't put any money in and yet they're the most aggressive advertisers and marketers that are out there. And so how, how do you identify? How do you find what's the process, et cetera? Well, you know, for now, it's mostly relationships and which, are, you know, I go out there and meet people, referrals, build relationships that way. You know, there is some inbound demand as well. Uh, so, so, you know, we get phone calls from people saying, Hey, we'd like to, we'd like to kind of list something on the portal. So there's a bit, a bit of both, but you know, we're, we're out there. People know of us and, and you know, people looking to raise money. It's really interesting now, specifically, a lot of people are realizing that. And if you see the trend, the 506Cs are starting to kind of really gain traction in real estate. People realize that this idea of people actually investing money online and fully online, even large checks is becoming more and more common. So the question is like, you know, how, how do I take control over that? And how do I take advantage of it? What's the best avenue to take advantage of this growing trend of people, you know, actually investing relatively large amounts of money online? Um, especially given the fact that institutions are not writing the same kind of large checks as easily as they were last year. And last year, I mean, in, in 2021, right? Because we're at the end of 2022. Uh, so um, there is now an awakening amongst a lot of sponsors that we need to diversify how we get our funding for real estate. And retail investors are not as, you know, that they're, they're, you know, it's, it's another avenue which people should be able to market to and, and gain a certain amount of uh, loyalty from those people, people who like them, you know, and build a brand. And then you, now you have investors who maybe not be such fair weather friends. Mm. How many approximately different, not necessarily deals, but how many different sponsors if you work with it within in bone, you know, there's, there's at least a hundred who at various levels are, are going to list on our platform, but there are probably more, you know, who are further back in the pipeline. Got it. Well, no, that is, you know, what a, what a simple and yet ingenious kind of place in the, in the, in the ecosystem that you put yourself in. Very, very smart. I got to hand it to you. What percent of the offerings, and I perhaps should have spent more time, but I, I didn't. 
what percent are look like most of it's multifamily? Is that true? And if not, are the what are other offerings? No, I am so we have some multifamily, but there's there's one which is coming up, which is going to be small multifamily offerings. So a lot of smaller, you know, you know, portfolios of smaller three, four, five, six units. And then we have one which is up there now, Oasis Nyo, which is it's ground up development. You know, it's a resort. Uh, so there's all types. For us, we're kind of agnostic, right? If it's real estate, we're, you know, it should be on our platform. Our goal is to become top of funnel for all, you know, for the, for the investing public, which wants to invest in real estate. So our goal is that anyone who wants to invest in real estate from the investing public, the first place they should go is, well, what does, what does Inbound have available for me to invest in? Because it's broad, right? It'll be any, it should be any type of real estate and anyone can invest to be accredited. Right. And there'll be all kinds of minimums. So, you know, people should be able to really show up there and decide, is there something for me? If they find it actually nothing fits my criteria, they might go elsewhere. But, you know, that we're looking to create a marketplace where this is top of funnel. You know, think real estate investing for the investing public. You'll think in, well, that's the goal. You know, I hadn't even thought about like, like somebody that's doing, like you said, five to six units per se. You know, like, because so much of what I do is, is talking to people with 200 units, 100 units, you know, just, just bigger scale, right? But there's a lot of money to be made. There's a, there's a lot more inefficiency in a, in a six unit building, kind of like what you were talking about. Maybe some of the stuff that you bought from an owner that kind of wants to just, you know, take, go off into the sunset, whatever. And yet, you know, a lot of those, Sponsors probably don't have the money. And, and so what a fantastic way for somebody to put in a thousand dollars or, you know, whatever that they could afford. They don't have to be accredited and participate some, in, in something that could be incredibly profitable. And, and, yeah. and that's, I see the, the genius in that. Th- thus far, what would you say is the average amount of the investors are putting into deals with your sponsors that are on the platform? So, you know, the mean is really sensitive to outliers, right? So the average would be, the average is probably about 12 grand. Got it. And, but and what's there are the mean? I never, I don't, I actually didn't calculate the mean. The average is about <laughs> 12 grand. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing, you know, a thousand, even some 500. But then you got some with 75,000, 40,000, mm-hmm. so. If you, and I, and I take it you're growing it organically for now. Okay. And so are you thinking maybe down the line, it's something that you would raise money for and, yeah. and you'd, yeah. Okay. And just trying to market the heck out of it. Yeah. So we plan to do a seed round. You know, we weren't ready for a seed round before. Now we're revenue generating. We weren't before Q4. So now we're revenue generating which is really exciting for us. We have deals and we have, we have, you know, we have real private equity companies. Terra Capital is going to run a deal with us. They have a, that one of their LPs is Barbara Corcoran. So they're going to run a deal with us. QC Capitals run a deal with us. We can have some others in the pipeline, you know, real private equity firms, you know, who've run deal, who are running deals with us. So we're starting to gain some traction there. Um, we're very clear about the problem we're solving for sponsors, which is you're spending marketing dollars anyway. And if you spend those marketing dollars, you're wasting it if you're not allowing anyone who sees it to potentially invest. Uh, so that's the problem we're solving. We're clear about that. We're hitting, I think, you know, this kind of product market fit phase where it's good for us to go out there and raise a round. And when you see, you know, Barbara Corcoran's company or I think well, she's a in the company. Oh, oh, she's an LP. Okay. In Power Capital. Yeah. 
ah, okay. And when you say they're running deals through you, through you, you mean they're just, they have their, they have deals on the site. Yeah. That's going to be, but they're going to be fundraising for that deal on inbound. Okay. And so are, is what you're saying is they could then ultimately be potential sources for investing seed money. Is that you? Well, I don't know about that, but, but what I do know is that what it means is that, you know, we're, we're, we're in business. Right. I think yeah, yeah. we're an investable opportunity. Previously, we got some angel money. You know, there was a higher degree of risk. And, and therefore, you know, capital would be much more expensive to go out and let VC money. But once you've, you risked it quite a bit, now it makes sense to go out there and get, you know, some of that more institutional capital. How exciting. Good for you. Yeah, really. When, yeah, for sure. When, when did the site go live? So it's been live for a while, but we were only able to take in investments and, and, and like run deals in, in April because we, we needed FINRA membership. So we got FINRA membership in April. Our first deal we didn't succeed at and there was reasons for that. You know, we learned a lot from. And then, then you know, we, we went retrenched a little bit, a little bit of a pivot and we got some more deals. So these are much more successful. So the first deal only raised $14,000 and it wasn't enough. The second deal has already got 65,000. Another one is 175,000. So these are bigger numbers. Um, so we just learned from the first one. Got it. And you use the, the word we, who, who, who is the we when you use that term? <laughs> yeah. So we do have a team. It's not a huge team. There's three of us. Um, and, and this, then we have other people who are like advisors, et cetera. So uh, we have a, obviously a, on the tech side, uh, we have a chief engineer, a guy called, um, uh, Frank Chavez and a really smart young guy. And, and he's, he kind of runs all our, all the technology. We have some support on, you know, part-time people who help out as needed in that. And then, uh, we have, uh, myself and then uh, we have, uh, some, some sales and marketing people. Well, listen, Apple started with two guys. Okay. So, so, you know, <laughs> you know, I would say most companies start with one or two people. So, yep. you know, that, that, that doesn't mean anything. I was just curious because you kept saying we, I get it. Well, super, super exciting. So the last question is this. You said that you were a good rabbi. What makes a good rabbi? You know, I think rabbi has to be, has to be a teacher, right? And has to be, and, and a teacher means someone, in order to be able to teach, you have to meet the people where they are. Right? And, and, and it's not about you and what you have to say. It's more like what the other person needs to hear. Um, and I think that good rabbis are able to kind of intuit what that is. And that doesn't mean like, uh, it means like being able to take the message and be able to impart it to them in a way in which they're able to kind of be inspired and, 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 and live a better life. And I think I was pretty good at that. So that's, by the way, a skill which I've taken to business with me, right? So in other words, I think I'm, I continue to do that, you know, to be able to kind of, because a lot of what I'm doing right now is a lot of people don't know this. They don't know that they, you know, one of the things which animates me is I realized my father had, he had the ability to invest in some of these deals. We would have been better off. He was a smart guy. He just didn't know it. And it wasn't available to him either because back then retail people couldn't invest in anything. And it's not like he, as a matter of fact, he tried to invest here and there in things when it was available, when the opportunities was made available to him. You know, we now have a Reg CF offering. The Jobs Act opened this up to retail investors. That's still really, really good deals, which are, and every time I see a, a big sign up at the conference, we went to the conference and it said accredited investors only. Every time I see that, it makes me a little bit angry. Angry and not in a good way, because what do you mean only accredited investors only? There's an option for you to open this to everyone on Rex CF, right? It doesn't have to be on my platform. It could be another platform. It doesn't matter, but there's an option. Why are you making, do you think and believe this is a really good deal? Why are you limiting it? 
you can do it otherwise. And so, you know, when we open this up, every deal, every 506C deal should also have a Reg CF component. When we open that up to everyone, we'll be making a big difference in the lives of many people. So part of what I do today is spend a lot of time trying to kind of, you know, help people understand the new regulatory environment, which allows them to do that. What would you, uh, as you raise money, what will you apply it towards? What needs the most amount of capital infusion? So right now, it, it's sales and marketing is really what it is. And because there's a, this huge opportunity here, you know, I think when I looked at it, I think it's like a $70 billion space. So $70 billion a year is being raised from five or six C's, right? And that's only growing. So, and, and, and real estate's, you know, maybe 20 or 30 billion of that. So uh, there's a huge, huge opportunity here. And a lot of opening that up is the education. People just need to realize that this is an option. So, you know, it's not just educating sponsors, it's also their attorneys, because attorneys often just know what they know. And as the law changes, they don't go back to school to study it. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. Uh, If somebody were to be so inclined to want to find more about about Invone, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, Invone.com. Okay. I-N-D-O-W-N stands for invest and own in phone.com. Or my, my email address is, it's actually, it's pronounced Levi, but it's spelled Levi, L-E-V-I at invone.com. Yeah. Fortunately, it's much easier to spell L-E-V-I. Yeah. And it's easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That's right. Well, yes. Yeah. Remember, like the jeans. Exactly. Like the jeans. Very, very enjoyable conversation. I want to uh, do this again next year and kind of, uh, you know, monitor your progress. It's exciting what you're doing. It's a brilliant niche. Well, thank you very much, Roger. Really, really grateful for you having me on. You got it. And I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 